Hello everyone, I am once again joined by Lance Lucero. Last time around, he was here to tell us about Bob the Non-Union Psychic and gave a teaser for his upcoming project, Waiting for Legro. Well, in the time that has passed, Lance has been on the road, showcasing Waiting for Legro, Coiffure Extraordinaire, which is probably a terrible pronunciation of a name I always try to get right. Instead, I'll allow Lance to explain to you how the name should be said and all of the great things he's been able to participate in and is now here to share with us regarding Waiting for Legro. Join me now for another conversation with Lance Lucero. We are officially live, and I am happy to say that I'm once again talking with Lance Lucero, whose uh, Warehouse Nine Productions was the ultimate tongue twister for me last time. I don't know what it was, Pro Nine Wear, you know, but it's Wear Nine Pro. It's been something that I've had a lot of fun following back up on now that we're here to talk about the um, sort of extension of our first conversation. We, we introduced Bob, the non-union psychic, and then we talked about the fact that coming soon was the uh, sort of prequel of Waiting for Legro, this third installment. And here to tell us just a little bit more about where we left off and, and what has transpired since. Lance, we, we started off with uh, Bob, the uh, non-union psychic. We're here to talk about this prequel and the third installment in this trilogy. So with all of that in mind, how are you? And how's it been since we last caught up? It's been, it's been good. I'm doing good. Um, it's been busy, uh, uh, especially with the uh, new film, the spinoff. Um, and we're just trying to keep it rolling. You know, we're trying to keep, keep the next projects coming. We're, we're in the festival circuit now officially. Uh, and the film is available to all those that actually purchase the Bob Non-Union Psychic book. So that's an incentive. You buy a book, you get a free movie. Um, otherwise, you have to come out to uh, a festival and see it on the big screen. Um, so in a sense, you can call it my own fan film, but this is my IP. I own it. So this is uh, my material. Um, but I, I think, you know, the companion piece to the book, actually having your own film spinoff is rather unique, especially if you own your own IP like I do. So that's kind of what uh, it was all about. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a circular thing. Yeah, you, you watch the movie, you get familiar with a little bit of the book. You read the book, you get familiar with, with, with the film. It goes in a circle so and complements each other and that's kind of what i was after uh especially with the film not not to do like a direct spin-off like take taking the actual bob character and putting him in a film i took a piece of it historically and went that route i had to do the really difficult thing and try and bring 1700s france to colorado i had to make sure this was the most difficult thing i'd ever done in my life and it's it played out as such but i i think it's very rewarding the way we made it look kind of like the 80s like it was shot in the 80s not just because it's on film but the 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 look the feel um sort of that fairy tale theater-esque uh attitude of jim henson terry gilliam monty python um all that fun stuff that we all grew up with, I wanted to tackle that, but I wanted it to keep it a part of my graphic novel, Bob Non-Union Psychic. So that's what kicked it off. That's where we went. 
And that was the project for about two or three years. This was a hefty project with the costumes and the, and the wardrobe, the wardrobe, the wigs, the set design, the miniatures, the paper cutouts. We went all out uh, to bring a spectacle uh, uh, film that that complements the book um, in a short form, which is the one reeler, you know? So it's like, it's 12 minutes long. You can tell a complete story in 10 to 12 minutes, just like the old days, your Looney Tune cartoons, Little Rascals, all the old one reelers. This, this is the attitude I wanted to capture. So some of these terms might be really unfamiliar to a modern viewer who's only enjoyed media in the last 10 or 15 years and does not have much exposure to the concept that there was a world prior to digital, <laughs> that there were this, you know, these forms known as film, which is something we captured both, uh, you know, movies on as well as pictures, but we've, we've gravitated so far away from it. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the one reelers. You know, I, I, I can, from the context, sort of extrapolate pretty easily, like, okay, this was the idea. You want to have a budget conscious product that you can provide on one reel because the efficiency is that you're telling a story in the amount of time you just described. It covers all the bases. It also explains, you know, for kids who grew up on those cartoons, like, why were they so short? Hey, <laughs> this is the value that they provided. It was a quick way, an easy marketable product that that had the efficiency of one reel and it sold itself in that way. I, I can see Barnum just sitting up there like, we'll call it one reelers, it'll work. Um, you know, just that ultimate salesman technique. So when it comes to this approach in a, in a modern context, uh, is it something you've been aware of for a significant amount of time prior to doing uh, Waiting for a Grow? And then how did it become, you know, part of the many projects you have going now, as well as a significant role in uh, the project we're talking about today? Well, I think the concept is, is that because we're in the digital age, um, people think uh, micro shorts uh, are a stable uh, aspect of entertainment. Like say, mo you know, movies can be as, as, as uh, long as or as short as a couple of minutes. And a lot of times to me, that's just a one-line joke or a gag. It has nothing to do with telling a story. Um, like the old days with, with the one reeler. So the concept was is that, you know, you got eight to 12 minutes to tell an entire story. And that one reeler actually fits on one reel of film. So in the old days, that one reel of film traveled. It was shown uh, before uh, movies, uh, uh, theaters, drive-ins. Um, we've seen them on TV constantly. That was kind of like the mainstays. How do you transport this one reel of film um, safely and make sure people can see it? And then that one reel of film, which is basically, uh, let's say it's 16 millimeter, it's, it's 12 minutes of film. When you get done with the, the front end and the, uh, and the back end, winding the film into the camera, you're going to expose some of it. So you're probably down to about 11 and a half minutes. So you can shave off a little bit more and you still have a one reeler, one reeler of film. And growing up, my generation probably being the last, our generation is, you know, we saw these cartoons and we got to see uh, uh, these one reelers, be it uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy, Little Rascals, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Looney Tunes. It didn't matter. 
a complete story was told within that, that time frame. And I think you can have a structure within a one reeler versus uh, a one note gag or a joke, which can last only a couple of minutes. Um, I don't see the value in that. I don't see the value in actually making people sit through that. Now, having said that, Waiting for LeGro, the, the first installment was experimenting with the Super 8 camera. It was just experimenting with it. So we had the costumes, we had the wig, and we decided to shoot uh, one roll of film, tungsten balanced film. That's why it has that weird kind of like a colorized look to it. That's real film, you know, that has nothing to do with anything digitally. So we just played around with that. And I put the little picture, there's a little picture in the background that actually was created by uh, Larissa Hughes. She's a comic book illustrator and she illustrated actually me and uh, Laurel Mansfield who plays the queen. She always has the boat on her head. We, we were at a comic con, so she did a quick sketch of us and we framed it and put it on the wall. And we kind of did a play on words here, you know, waiting for LeGros, waiting for Godot. Um, so we just experimented with it, uh, this camera, this, this really, old Sankyo, like 1978 uh, Super 8 camera that shoots at like 18 frames per second. We just played with it. And then we realized that the footage looked pretty dang good. So we expanded it and decided, well, let's do a sequel to it, which is uh, um, uh, Waiting for LeGros 2, uh, The Eye of the Tiger. So we basically did another play on words and we took it from Rocky 3, you know, two queens getting a fight in the end over, over a card game. Um, elaborate costumes, elaborate hair constructs, an actual set and an actual space. We shot, I think, maybe three rolls of film with the same Sankyo camera, daylight balanced film, so it has a different look to it, and made a farce of it and kind of left it at that. And then we started to realize we can really expand this to a part three, an upper game. So we had already produced um, a Western uh the Last Resort, which did very, very well in the festival circuit and has distribution through the Filmmakers Co-op out of New York as a one-reeler, black and white, Super 8, better camera, 24 frames per second. Uh, we redubbed all the sound, like Sergio Leone. Like, you know, we, we, we upped our game and thought, okay, this was a success. You know, we won the, uh, the United States Super 8 uh film and digital uh, video award in New Jersey. That's like the biggest Super 8 medal you can get in the world. We won that. That's like the Sundance. That's like the can. Um, I mean, it was great when we went there. We also got the audience award. So we, we went there with our, our film at a big auditorium in Rutgers College. Uh, Al Nigren runs it. And we started to see these Super 8 films from all over the planet. And they were really, really good. I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is not like your normal video festival that you go to. And it's just one line or jokes. It is it is poor quality. These this is this was high quality and fantastic. We ended up winning, winning everything. And that kind of set things in motion to say, OK, the one reeler is the, is the way to go. So I did the unmentionables next, uh, you know, retro cops. But I upped the game 16 millimeter uh, like I did in my feature film. Uh, better quality, better camera, uh, different film stocks, and it worked out well again. We were a hit. So I said, well, let's do the third segment uh, of, of Waiting for LeGros, uh, Coiffier Extraordinaire, Waiting for LeGros, and let's, let's truly base it off the Bob non-union psychic uh, graphic novel. 
And the fun part is, is, you know, it's a spinoff of the, of the graphic novel, but it's also a chunk of, of farcical history. This guy really existed. Um, he really existed in time. You can look him up. We just added this facade to him, this paranormal adventure aspect to him. And uh, I, I think it worked out well. Once again, we stuck with the one reeler time frame, and it, it just seems to be the route to go to tell a complete story with a beginning, middle, and an end. And the ten- attention spans of people, I think, are about that. That's all you get anymore nowadays. You're not going to get anything more. Um, that's why I'm hesitant to do a feature film again, because it's like I right now I think the short form is where it's at, and I can conquer um, knights in shining armor. I can do westerns. I can do retro '70s cops. I can do 1700 France. I can get more of a catalog going, uh, more of a resume piece than just being a one-note filmmaker, like doing just horror or action-adventure kung fu, you know? I mean, no, I want to cover more ground. So that that's the entire concept of what we're doing. But now, with the marketing aspect of the new film, it just ties in with the book. And it's fun, you know? It's deep. There's many layers to it. I'm curious, just because you, you've covered so much, where do I want to jump in at? But I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is that there's this circuit that you alluded to uh, at the very beginning, when we just started talking, that you're in the middle of right now. How actually long does that circuit run? When did it begin? And, and does it have a, you know, an end date? Is it like a season, or is it sort of, you know, it's like a merry-go-round? You jump on and you just keep going from one to the next because there's always something else to uh, participate in, compete for. There's always, you know, these opportunities that until I had the chance to become aware of your film, I was not aware of so many of these festivals going. Oh, there's so many festivals. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and this has been a conversation for movie makers now, especially this last couple of years or so, because anybody who is anybody can start a festival. Anybody can, can charge a submission fee, give you a digital award. And all of a sudden you're an award-winning movie maker, filmmaker. Uh, and in a sense, it's been destroyed. Uh, because of, of of the mass marketing of video. So where do we fit as filmmakers? So we're, we're tried and true to the form, filmmaker. Now, the festival circuit starts at any time. I usually like to start submitting in spring so we can have some hits in fall by the time the submission notifications come in. And that way, hopefully, we can travel to a venue and showcase the film live with the live audience. I mean, that is the ultimate high. That's what you want to do. So it can start at any time. I think that you can start submitting in spring or fall, and fall will take you into the next year, which is spring. So it's, it's, it's a year-round thing, and you're usually just waiting for submission dates. But now, being pretty savvy at the, the festival circuit, I can really dial in where I want to submit and where I think we fit. So you're just not throwing money away. Um, the key is, is getting people to understand we're shooting on real film and that's a big deal. You know, they're, uh, they want to lump us in with, with video makers and we're not that, that's not what we do. We don't, we're not shooting a video, you know, we're not setting up a, a video camera and hitting record. You know, we are, I am purchasing film, which is my canvas specifically. I'm loading it into a camera. I am lighting my subjects and I am, photographing it, you know, I'm exposing light to celluloid. 
um, like they did the old days for, I'm not doing anything new that hasn't been done the last 130 years. Um, it's just that everybody now thinks we're all the same and I'm sorry, we're not. There's two different formats. There's video and then there's film. Everybody's calling himself a filmmaker until I say, so what film do you shoot on? What camera do you shoot on? And then the conversation ends because it's like, oh, well, uh, I'm a video maker. Actually, yeah, that's what you are. And I know it doesn't sound as sexy as filmmaker, but let's be true. Let's be true. Otherwise, we're lying. I don't go anywhere and lie. I am a filmmaker and that's what I shoot on. So when I go to a festival, I make sure they know this. And when people see the difference, they're like, oh, dang, that is that. That's the way it's supposed to look. I'm like, yeah, that's real film. You know, that's what we do. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. Is there a substantial for anyone who's not familiar with the difference, a, a substantial amount of work involved with filmmaking compared to video making that maybe the general public or even those who are video makers are not aware of that is important to consider just when it comes to um, time process and other factors that, that would go along with that? I would definitely say yes. I mean, uh, shooting real film is, is a craft. It's you have, it is more than technique. Um, you think about your shots. You just don't let the camera run. You don't accumulate five hours of footage for your 10 minutes short. You know what I mean? You, you have X amount of rolls of film that you purchased and you've got to be dead on everything you do. You have to plan it out. You have to light it. You have to rehearse it. And then you shoot it and hope that you can keep your shooting ratio low, like maybe down to two, possibly three takes. I always joke about it. If I do more than three takes, I should fire myself. You know what I mean? Because it's like, I, I, there's no need to do more than that. If you can't get it in three, there's a problem. There's going to be special circumstances where you're, you're going to have to go a little farther, um, more takes. But it comes down to studying the film. People look at their old movies and they say, that's the way I want my, my movie to look. And they try and cheat it digitally by using programs, uh, by using weird color correction. Um, it doesn't work. You, you can't lie. Just embrace your format. I embrace film, so I know what it's going to look like. I've experimented with it. So if I pick a film stock, that's going to be my, my canvas. I, I know the light that's needed. I know how it's going to saturate. I know how it's going to look when it's, when it's all done and color corrected. Um, it's going to look like the films that I love and grew up with. But now we have better film today than they did then. We have faster film. We don't need as much light. It's more forgiving uh, and it is economically feasible. I mean, you're going to set a camera up and you're going to photograph anything. It doesn't matter if, if, it, if it's video or film, you still have to have people. You still have to have actors. You still have, I mean, have sets, what have you. There, that process is still there, but you're taking it a little bit farther with film because now when you light things, I can look at it and go, okay, I know where the shadows are going to fall. I know where I can pull the image out of the darkness which you can't do with video. Um, I know that my image is going to be really saturated. It's going to look fantastic. It's film is closer to your eye than video is. So that's enough said. And by doing that, by shooting on film, I'm not like everybody else in the pool now. Everybody else is shooting video. And it all has this, 
the majority of it can have the same color palettes. Certain cameras have the same color palettes. You're not doing anything really unique. They're they talk now about color theorists. And I'm like, yeah, well, if you have a lesser quality format, color theory isn't going to help you. You need to know what the colors are from the get go. Um, it goes deep, but I think that's part of the craft. There's nothing that's more intoxicating than when you are rolling film, you hear it buzzing through the camera and you capture that moment and you know, this is going to look pretty good. And when it's processed and it comes back and you scan it and see it, you're like, wow, that is film. That's the way it should look. Sure. It takes a little bit, a little bit more time. You have to be really careful, but I think that's what makes you appreciate it more rather than just hitting record on a video camera and capturing something in front of it. Um, that's why I encourage stick with film because you feel really good at the end of the day when, and you and you feel like justified calling yourself a filmmaker, you know, it's like, yeah, that's what I am because that's what I should not. I would be curious. It, would you say that's your favorite part of the process when you have set up all of the things that you know you needed to, you've done all the preparation you are now executing. And as you described it, the sound of the film going through, the, the knowledge that you're capturing the scene, the moment, exactly the way you planned it. And later you'll get to see it and enjoy that. Would you say that's your favorite part? Or is there maybe another part of the process where you're like, okay, that's a high one. This one actually is the, the, the bread and butter, the reason that, that I come back to it every time because I, I get that sensation. I think that's that's kind of the high of it. I mean, when you are actually filming, it's like, okay, this is happening right now. And you can see the people in front of the camera or behind, they appreciate it. They're like, wow, did we really capture that? Um, and, and I'm the guy that has to say, I got it, moving on. And as, as a director, they have to trust me to, you know, to know, no, I have it. You did great. Let's move on. And it goes by so fast. And when you, when you rap, it's, you know, the high is over. It's like, okay that happened, you know, uh, let's get it processed and let's get it scanned and see what it looks like. And then when you start to see it come together, you're like, all right, I, I, I got it. That's the second high. It's like, all right, I, I got it. It looks great. You're not just doing a playback right there as though you have video. You, you, you know, I don't have video playback for my, my film cameras. It is, it is there. You can do it, but I don't have that for my particular camera. So, I just do it old school. I have to rely on my skill. Did I pull focus right? Is, is my light meter working correctly? Uh, we document everything so that I know, all right, we did it perfect this time. When we do it again, here are our notes. We know we can do it again. So that's the high, man. Over and over, it's a high. And then when you see it on the big screen in front of a live audience and you just see those reactions, you see people's mouths just drop wide open. It's like, all right, you know, the, the high continues um, in a different way. You know, there, there are some nerves, uh, but still it's that anxiety is a positive thing. Don't be afraid. We put all this energy into it. It's got to show in front of people. Let's do it. And the whole process is a high. And I, I want people to experience that. I want them to go a little deeper with their craft and experience that not just record something on video and then call themselves a filmmaker and say, it's great. It's like, well, you know, uh, it, it can be, but really it's not filmmaking. 
So I was curious then also if there were any parts that you dread, but to a degree, it sounds like all of it is part of the joy of the process. All of it is part of the, the joy of the craft. Is there any part where you're like, okay, I love all of it. I love this a little less. <laughs> I still love it, but it's a part of the process that it would be great if we didn't have to do, um, whether it's the, the uh, marketing side or some other element where you're like, look, um, I enjoy doing this part. This other part, I do it because I know it's necessary or it's important. Or as you described, is, is it all kind of just like, yeah, but I'm still doing the best thing in the world. Um, you know, it's like, I, I love the stories about the guy who's doing the job that you're like, wow, look at the rock stars. And you got the guy who's on the crew, like, nah, man, I got the real gig and he's pulling cables and grabbing gear. And you're like, wow, Hey, way to do what you love and love every minute of it. So, uh, is there any downsides or is it all hot? It's, it's, it can be exhausting because, uh, we usually wear many hats at this very low budget level. So, you know, I'm a, produ I'm a producer, co-producer, I'm the director, I'm the writer, uh, I'm the camera operator. Um, my part can be very, very unglamorous, you know, whereas performers are pristine, they got to look pristine. Uh, I'm the one crawling on the ground with the camera. I'm lugging the camera around, you know, you got to be in shape. The camera's heavy. Um, I got to load it. I got to make sure every sprocket and everything is engaged. I got to make sure that magazine is taped, you know, so I'm the director of photography, the cameraman, um, I'm all of it. So at the end of the day, it's exhausting. I'm not only that, I'm also craft services, um, you know, uh, whatever else may pop up. It's like, okay, people, we got to eat now. I made elk sauce the night before here, here's everything, you know, uh, uh it's exhausting. Um, so I, we actually train before we go into shooting, you know, we exercise, we eat well. Um, because when, when you, when you start to, to make a film, you got to be on your mark, man. You got to be alert and ready and you got to check mark every box you can. So the logistics side of it is exhausting. It is exhausting. But people don't need to know that. All I care about is what is in the frame that I'm capturing. They don't need to know I'm sweating. They don't need to know I'm standing in the sun in the desert or doing whatever at 98 degrees. They don't need to know, you know, what's happening to me. That's invisible. They need to look at what's in front of the camera. So it's a, it's a lot of hard work. And there are, there are a lot of things that I'm like, wow, it'd be nice to have a crew. You know, uh, it'd be nice to have uh, some, some other people there uh, to do stuff. But on the flip side, do I need anybody else? No, not really. We got it covered. Um, so, you know, there's that. All right. I'll let the college interns out there know, keep polishing your resumes. It's not time to submit, but there could be a, a point down the road where you're like, Hey, yeah, you get down there and start crawling. I, you know, I, I've gotten to a certain age where, you know, my knees are, are no longer going to let me do it. Or, you know what, you know what, the back's hurting today. Hey, bub, let's go. <laughs> yeah. You know, it might, it might be that way, but man, I love working that Not camera. Yet. You know, I love it. Yeah. It's like just the high of it. I've had a director of photography a couple other times and I trusted them and they did very well. Um, but um, I think I want to keep doing that. I want to keep photographing somehow, some way, but maybe down the line, 
that's going to be taken out of my hands logically because I will really have to concentrate on, on the directing side. But, you know, uh, you've got to trust your, your photographer and they're now film, film photographers are very hard to come by. So it's an education process now. Um, so when we go to festivals and stuff, I now I have to do the education side and tell them that it's real film. Uh, it's a, it's almost a bummer. I have to do that. I have to explain that this is real film. Uh, it's just like what you've grew up with and loved. This is, this is the real deal. Um, you can do it. It's economically feasible because some people, they pop off while well, I can't afford you know, to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a few feet of film. It's like, dude, that's not how it works. Obviously, you don't know filmmaking. So that's the downside, you know, have to having to educate uh, basically ignorance because, oh, it's all video. That's what you do. Or where do I see your video? Dude, I don't shoot video. You know, that's not what I do. Um, I don't just throw it out there in perpetuity for 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 it to just get lost in, in, in the ether space. You know, it's, you've got to go to a festival to see it. You can buy a book to watch it. We're taking a different approach, specializing to say, hey, this, this is what we're doing is special and we want to share it with everybody. But, you know, uh, you've got to take a little effort to get there to see it. So with that in mind, I'm, I'm curious, you know, is there a specific goal with each film or is there a, a larger overarching goal that goes with everything that warehouse nine productions is creating you know a um maybe mission statement or you know approach that maybe conveys some of these ideas that you've been sharing about the value you see in film compared to video the value you see in the uh tradition of a craft that unless there are people that continue to carry it on could eventually fade away. Is there uh, something that, that when you are making films is always on the horizon for each of these uh, as a totality, or do you feel that each one you're creating a specific goal? As you mentioned, you, you started out sort of playing around. And then after that, you started to have more intention behind your process. Like, okay, let's tell a real story. Let's tell a complete story. Let's let's invest in this idea of the one reeler and what we can accomplish in that space. So beyond those goals, those initial goals, did there become something else where it was like, hey, this is, uh, well, maybe there's more going on here. Maybe there's a bigger thing. I, I think about a lot of writers who feel that uh, their whole pursuit is to write as part of the canon, that they've read all these great classics and they want their book to, to end up in that sort of classic area, or they want it to speak to uh, maybe great gothic or horror writers that they love. There's this sort of uh, awareness of where you're writing to and who you're writing for, be they the present or the past. And I was curious if any of that was part of uh, an influence when it comes to your creation. Absolutely. I think that it's, it's, it's an overall perspective. You know, um, people think that the grand, the grand thing is making a feature. And I warn people strongly, be very careful what you wish for, because a feature film can destroy you, especially at the independent level. So why not take your time? Why not try to accomplish more in a one reeler than putting all your eggs in one basket for one feature film, especially in this new era we have of the lack of attention span. 
So I want to, I want to, I want to cover as much as I can in a one reel or aspect before I do another full blown feature at a, at a bigger level, which, which isn't a problem. You know, I've done it before. I can do another feature again. Um, but man, you know, I, I want to do Westerns. I want to do retro. I want to do 17th uh, century hairdressers. I want to do samurais. I want to do uh, all kinds of things. Ancient Greece, uh, World War II. And I can accomplish that in a one-reeler more economically feasibly, in a more economical feasible way uh, than, than just devoting everything to one project. And by doing this, what we're trying to plan on is creating our own showcase, not a festival, but our own showcase of films shot on film. And here are the Warehouse Nine films in a one reeler structure. And you can come and sit down for a couple hours, watch real films, get a taste of different genres, different styles, comedy, drama, silliness, and have a good time. I, I want to do more. And I think this, my gut's telling me this is what I have to do right now uh, versus jumping into a feature film. And I think Warehouse Nine, that's what it's structured for, you know, uh, graphic novels. Graphic novels is what I would end up wanting to do more on the graphic novel side. Uh, but the film side, one reelers, I think I want to stick with that for like another two or three and then see what happens. You know, I want my resume to say, hey, this cat, he did a Western in the great American West on film. He's worth investing in for a feature Western or wow, this guy did retro cops, urban cops. This, you know, I want that. And I think that that's where the fear comes in in modern movie makers is they want two people sitting in a room talking and claiming that, oh, great. We did this for $1.95. And let's pat ourselves on the back. Well, great, you did it for $1.95. Guess what? It looks like you did it for $1.95. And where is that going to get you story-wise to people sitting in a room talking? You know, let's let's up the game here. Let's up the game and do something cinematic. And at Warehouse 9, that's what I preach. You know, make it cinematic. Make it as big as you possibly can with as little as you have. And And I think I admire that when people do that. When they go all out for a, a 10, 20 minute short, short film. And you can just see it. I really love it. Versus one line jokes, skits, or just a couple of people talking in the room. It's like, that's not cinematic. You know, am I supposed to really get into that? I want more. So if I want more, I got to put up or shut up. I got to give more. And that's, that's what we're all about for the big picture. I understand, um, and I loved your description on it. I, I'm curious, have you received any comparisons for those who are aware of the fact that you are, you know, drawing from this rich history? Obviously, there there will potentially be influences if you, you know, read a lot of Hemingway. There's a strong chance you're going to write some, you know, Hemingway-esque uh, sentences and maybe even story structures. So uh, are there influences that, you're conscious of that, that you're putting into your films compared with maybe those who are like, Hey, I, I really dug what you did. And I noticed this about it, or, you know, you reminded me of this uh, classic thing that, that filmmakers are aware of and that they bring to your attention about your work, comparing it to this again, rich history. 
I, I think the feature film Hunting for Fish, uh, it, it stands on its own. But I do give credit to like um, Stanley Kramer's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World or Alex Cox's Repo Man um, or Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. But how do I do it at a low budget scale and how do I urbanize it and, and make it like a modern day Western? Um, a couple people have caught on. Well, wow, that's like a, a modern day Western. It's a Western. And I'm like, OK, you got it. Uh, moving on, I did a Western. So I do a Western. And of course, I'm, I'm influenced by Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood. And I think, OK, I, let's try and have that that vibe. But what am I going to do differently? You know, I'll cast a female lead. I'll shoot it in the great American West. You know, I can't get to Spain. I don't need to. I'm here in, De in Denver, Colorado. I got the real West here. Um, I'm going to shoot it on black and white because I want that, you know, 310 to Yuma 1959 look to it. You know what I mean? I, you know, I want uh, Glenn Ford. I, you know, I, I want it to look that way. I want Lee Van Cleef. I want real sweat, real unshaven dudes. You know, I want real cowboys, but I want to make it a little paranormal. I want it ghost. You know, I want I want to do something different. And people kind of pick up on that a little bit. They're kind of like, well, that's a little that's a little Sergio Leone, but not because you have that paranormal element to it. I'm like, well, I'm glad you got it. You know, um, when we did Retro Cops, I mean, there's a generation that got it. You know, they're like Beretta, uh, Starsky and Hutch, uh, Mannix. Uh, you know, they start listing all their favorite Barney Miller, all their favorite you know cop shows on television. I'm like, well, that's what I was after. So I'm glad you can see it. But once again, I'm going to shoot it in black and white. I'm going to urbanize it. You know, I, I, I want it. I want to go like a little bit more of a raging bull look or a Broadway Danny Rose, you know, uh, with the film stocks that I'm using. Um, and then when I do a Legro, you know, a couple of people picked up on it. They're like, wow, that's that's kind of a little Monty Python-ish, isn't it? And I'm like, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, when they think Monty Python, they automatically think Terry Gilliam, you know, Baron Munchausen, uh, Brazil, Time Bandits, things like that. So uh, people get it, and then but they say it's really off the wall. I said, yeah, obviously I have influences, but I don't want to be derivative. I'm not blatantly ripping people off and just doing what they did. I don't want to do what they did. They've already done it. I want to do it my way. So that's how I tackled it, you know, and, and that's the fun of it. I think, I think what we have today is too much mimicry, uh, too much redundancy. Uh, everything you see today is derivative of everything we've already seen. I'm trying to avoid that, but obviously I have influences. Um, I kind of want to. I kind of want to stand out uniquely in the way of look. I, I got this paranormal short flick based on my book about hairstylists. You know, I mean, nobody's doing that. Who's doing that? Um, I got to be more off the wall uh, than anything, but still have a commercialistic aspect to it. But there are people that have seen Coiffier and they walked away scratching their heads. They were laughing. They were like, "What the hell is this, man? This is this is off the wall." I'm like, that's what I wanted it to be. You were entertained for 11 and a half minutes. I had you. I had you by the throat. That's that's the ultimate accomplishment. I, I concur. It reminds me um, of a character from a show my wife and I enjoy watching in which they're describing the responsibility of an artist. And they're like, you think my responsibility is to show you truth? 
My responsibility as an artist is to capture your attention and hold it for as long as possible. And if I happen to find truth along the way, it's a blessing. But, you know, my job is to hold your attention for as long as I want. And if I can accomplish that, you know, that's my goal. If I've done it, then I've done my, my, my job, right? And as you pointed out, um, <laughs> when, you're, when you're creating a story, hey, there's maybe parts you're not going to grasp or there's things, but I, did I hold your attention? Did I keep you engaged? Did I keep you enthralled, right? Uh, I was also uh, intrigued by the fact that recently we, my wife and I watched the uh, Robert Downey Jr. documentary about him, a little bit of a biography. And they touch on the fact that his father was this really fun filmmaker who when you when you hear the plots of his stories you think to yourself that's a plot that that's a plot for a, <laughs> a project uh, i i think of them i think of what you mentioned about hammer films and i think about how you, you point out there's a value to those and i'm curious if you could just share in an opportunity where who knows how many people are listening now and will be listening but the chance for them to hear this idea of what is the importance of that legacy as it exists and as it can be continued or at least referenced through projects like yours, through this reminder of what things like one reelers uh, about what it means to make a film starting out and telling stories on a budget and then building from that. Uh, I feel like many of these are these uh, great examples and qualities, but that's just my interpretation of who these uh, producers and creators were. You, you see it, I'm sure, from a much different level, having watched a lot of their, their stuff and also working in a similar vein. Um, again, just to rephrase, what is the importance behind that, that video makers and others overall should be aware of and know, hey, there's an importance behind this and we've got a good one explained here. I think, I think primarily is like, yeah, you, I'm glad you mentioned Hammer Films because, man, you know, that's a great legacy. And come on, man, even though whatever the budgets were, they did it right. Family-owned business. They were churning out these, these maybe not the best cinematic art on the planet, but still, if you got a Vincent Price, a Peter Cushing, a Christopher Lee, I mean, it doesn't matter if you could see a wire in the background holding up a tree or something. You know what I mean? It, it's, it, you're, you're really getting into what's happening. And I, I loved the renegade guerrilla style shooting that they did to get those films made. And you always hear stories about how they just had fun. They, everybody had fun. So in retrospect, when I shoot, I want everybody also to have fun. You know, um, it's serious, uh, but still everybody's laughing. You know, they're wearing wigs. They get to be cowboys. I mean, I remember just, everybody baking at in 98 degree weather when we were shooting the Western, they were just, and I'm like, well, the sweat's real, you know, go stand in the shade. Um, and then tourists were coming around the dwelling that we were shooting at. Everybody was sharing the, the dwelling for like, if I'm shooting a close up intensity of, of my, my bad guy and he's, he's just hamming it up right on the other side of that dwelling, there's a yoga uh, uh, gal doing poses so she can get photographs. And then there's, over here, there's there's a cheer cheerleader squad, and then there's there's a couple that's that's waiting 
to get inside the dwelling to do their 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 wedding pictures, you know, and then he comes out and I'm carrying this little camera as a cowboy and people light up, look, it's a real cowboy, you know what I mean? And then the actor's like, yeah, I'm a real cow. I mean, all the experience is is part of is is part of the whole process. And you know, you, you can't deny that. Even when we're sitting at we wrap for the day, we're we're eating dinner. Uh, we're basically done, but all my, my performers are still in costume. They have the wigs on and then they're finally like, aren't we done shooting? Haven't we been done shooting for two hours? Why am I still wearing the wig? Hey, you look good. You know, I mean, the experience is, is part of it. Their stories and, and people, they, they tell this to their colleagues and people want in, but I'm very, I'm very, you know, uh, secure about what I do. It's like, no, you can't necessarily come in and you can't come in and observe me, you know, uh, because I'm trying to get this done and I don't have time to be the mentor right now. You know what I mean? I'm shooting my film and this is what I have to do. So there is a bit of, there is a little bit of isolationism, but it's necessary. Um, and I think that's, that creates also a little bit of mystique. You know, there's rumor out here in Colorado, there's a guy shooting on film. Yeah, it's me. You know what I mean? Uh, there, oh, I, I've heard about you. Okay, that's cool. You know, and oh, I already seen your stuff at the Bug Theater. That was really awesome. Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, but still, I'm kind of like this weird phantom thing floating around that's shooting on film. Who does that anymore? That doesn't sound practical. That doesn't sound smart. Nah, whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a weird time. I never expected it to turn out this way. 20, 25 years ago, whatever. It happened fast. You know, the HD invasion happened fast. The video invasion happened really fast. And I think it's been very destructive. But here we are. You know, I, I continued to fight to say, hey, this is cinema. And this is the way I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to fake it. I'm sorry, truth hurts. Don't fake it till you make it. Uh, with that in mind, you know, you mentioned that you're you're midway through the uh, awards experience, your uh, or the circuit, and the experiences that are going with it. I'm curious, you know, between one reeler, Indie X, uh, Independent Shorts Awards, uh, the Indie Short Fest, AIMAFF, which I had to look up, and you should too if you don't know it. Um, <laughs> which one of those has so far been? Has one of those actually? Let me phrase it this way to offer a different premise for the question. Has one of those been a favorite awards experience so far, simply because of either, you know, what it took to get it in or what the experience was like when you were informed or anything along those lines, or um, potentially is the best still yet to come, the, the circuit you know, being something that is still ongoing? It's ongoing, and, and I think the, the best is yet to come. Um, you know, there are outlets that, that I'd like to hit, and, and we got to be realistic. Um, you know, you got your big top 10 festivals. You know, I, I can list things like Telluride, Sundance, Toronto. You know, uh, we'll, we will probably never get into anything like that. Um, uh, I can try, even in my own hometown. You know, it's like it, I don't get accepted a lot here. But hey, they like us in New York. They like us in Texas. They like us in Vegas. They like us in Los Angeles and Florida. So it's it's fun. It's fun when we actually go do a showcase of any kind. You know, I mean, 
uh, Austin was a great showcase. Uh, we did uh, the micro short for the Legro films one and two, and it was a great hit. We we showed up in costume. People loved it. They were blown away that film existed. Um, action on film in Las Vegas. We won that grand award for our Western. People were once again, wow, this people were applauding. You know, they were like, great film, yay, and a Western. Because, you know, I had I had people, producers standing up at that podium saying, take whatever format you can and just go do it. And I cringe when I hear that. I'm like, ooh, don't, don't encourage that because there was a lot of things that were unbearable to watch quality-wise and sound-wise. And what I try to reiterate to people is that when we make a film, it's deliverable ready. It's ready to go to distribution. It is not just an experimental work piece. It is ready for the next level. That's why it looks and sounds good in an auditorium, in a theater, anywhere. Um, so the idea is, is to keep retaining that, but getting better and better and better at it. You know, obviously I got a really old, a 16 millimeter camera, you know, it's over 50 years old. So once again, analog will last. Everything digital has a shelf life. I have real film. You know, real film, my negative will last a lifetime if it's stored correctly. What's going to happen with a drive full of zeros and ones? We don't know. You know what I mean? we got to be very careful here. So that's what I have to preach. You know, that's what I have to say. Um, it goes beyond the art now of filmmaking. It goes to the education and also trying to, to square away to people that we can still do it and don't give up on it. Because I guarantee if you do it, you're really going to love it. You're going to get you're going to get a bug that's going to plague you because you've done it and you just want to do more versus let's just throw up our, 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 our iPhone and do something. All right. Great. You did something. But how is it cinematic? You know, how how is it going to capture that audience? Are you you writing on the gimmick that you used a phone? That's just a gimmick. We got to be able to transcend and not let people see the gimmick. We need to see the actual format, film. And that's the fun of it. You know, that's the fun of it. it certainly sounds like it. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful sort of feeling about this idea of something that has existed for so long, uh, persisting into how many ages have we moved from, you know, the video cassette to the digital age to, well, goodness who knows what's next as you pointed out we've gone from the film canister and the reel to a hard drive full of zeros and ones the next thing i don't know liquid maybe some sort of gas I, we already I, have I, it film is right. a process film is a chemical process so it is right. already liquid it's already organic gotcha i didn't even think about that context but i i you are correct through the developing process right um, with all of that in mind, um, so much more still ahead. Um, you know, what do you do at this point? It, you, you don't seem like a person who rests on their laurels, who says, yeah, did it done. That was great. I don't know. Get back to me in a little while. I'm just going to go, you know, lounge by the pool and, um, maybe hang out on my phone for a while and, see if I get inspired at some point. Like, it seems like um, you're one of those folks who's, who's got maybe potentially something lined up next. So without giving too much away, is there more in store 
from uh, Warehouse Nine Productions that you're already like, hey, look, I've got a time frame, and then this starts, and then the next thing, and then it's it's all about you know pursuing that next project. It is. It's always, you know, like I say, once you get the bug, it's hard to stop. Even if it doesn't matter how how tired you think you are or how, how exhausting the process was, the moment I the moment I say the film is done, it's done, and then I have to think, okay. What's next? Um, if I haven't already thought of it, so I mean, you know, we have the Loose Pistols uh, series, which is the Unmentionables. I have like six more episodes written. Will we conquer those? Probably not just yet. Uh, once again, I want—I don't want to be—I uh, I want to keep doing things that are original moving forward. So, you know, what 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 is the bug? And it hit me and it's World War II. So we're in pre-production for a World War II project. And uh, I'm trying to figure it out. This one's going to be difficult. Um, but then, but then Coiffier Extraordinaire was extremely difficult. I'm thinking, well, how the, well, how the heck am I going to pull this off? You know, this is something that's another period piece, which some people always say, you know, don't do period pieces. Uh, you know, don't, don't, don't work with animals. Don't work with kids. Don't. And I'm like, you know, you can also say, don't shoot on film. I mean, what's the point? Either you do it or you don't, you know? Um, so we're working it out now. Uh, you know, we have, we have the lead cast, we have the script. we're starting to put together wardrobe, um, props, but this one's going to be pretty heavy and, and I'm trying to figure out how I can pull it off. You know, I've extended my hand to the universe to say, hey, people, here I am. and I'm going to do something again. That's really cool. Who wants in? And basically what I do is just scare people off. They're like, oh, wow. OK, never mind. We're going over here. I'm like, OK, you guys said you wanted to be involved. I got this thing. You know, don't be don't be afraid. So World War Two is next and we're in pre-production. And I said it officially right now, right here. It, I can't turn, I can't renege on the deal. You know, it's, this one's plaguing, plaguing me a little bit, uh, 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 but I got to figure it out. Uh, that's, that's movie making in general. It doesn't matter if it's film or video is problem solving. All right. You got to figure out how you're going to do it. It's, it's a big puzzle. And you got to figure out how all the pieces are going to fit together. And of my generation, I, I think we come from a uh, uh, we come from a long line of we figured it out. You know, we we just knew how to do it. It's not going to all happen for you in a computer. You need to get a little dirty, and you need to figure it out. And it's physical. So that's it. I got to figure this one out. This one's going to be tough, but I'm doing World War II, and it's going to be badass. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what I can guarantee. We're going to leave you to it. And um, just like I did when we talked about Bob Nonunion Psychic, I'm going to include the links for everyone who wants to go check out the uh, first two chapters of Waiting for LeGro, this third one. And then all they have to do is keep up with you on uh, the uh, Wear 9 Pro social media handles to know when that World War II project starts filming will be available for viewing and in the meantime all the great content they can check out that you've already created right absolutely i mean you know <laughs> the beauty thing with the new film is that you know we have the book you have nice. the bottom line exactly 
So, you know, you go, you go to ASAP, any one world, you get the book, you get your golden ticket, you get to see Coiffure Extraordinaire waiting for LeGrow. You know, you get to see it. Do you potentially see maybe a similar tie-in with the upcoming World War II project? Or was this something unique in that you had created the graphic novel, had this great opportunity to explore further with these films? Um, Or maybe something else in mind with how you can tie the uh, World War II project to uh, another media or medium? Well, the World War II project is actually based off of a full-length feature script. It's based off of it. And... um, it got traction quite a few years ago in the Hollywood circuit, but nobody wanted to touch it. It was that, that, that the subject matter is pretty intense. So we kind of do this as a little bit of a prequel to the, to that, to that full length feature script. It's, it's, it stands alone. It's its own story, but therein lies the, if people want more, well, I got a full length feature that I can do and it'll be heavy. Um, so there is always, I think, an expansion upon everything that I do. So even with Coiffure Extraordinaire, that's one spin-off of the Bob book. There could be many others. I cover a thousand years of history in that book. So there's pirates, there's whatever else, you know, uh, there's knights, uh, there's the Bob character himself. Um, there's the spin-off of, of, of his grandparents, you know. It, I always like to be ready for something extra with one project. So if somebody says, I like that, what else do you have? I can say, well, I have, you know, the sequel to this written, or I have the expansion to that written. Um, I'm ready to go. So I'm always busy in that respect. I'm always busy to say, well, I'm not a one trick pony. I have other things up my sleeve. And if somebody's interested, yeah, I could do that. Sure. I'm your guy. You know, what? Uh, just how do you want it done? All they have to do is reach out and say, hey, and, and let you know what they're interested in. I like Absolutely. it. Lance, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed following up on uh, Waiting to LeGrow, you know, hearing about it prior, getting to finally see the film, which was a delight for me. And also, you know, understanding its connection to Bob Nanyan Psychic. Um, I'm interested to see what you have in store. Certainly plenty awaits. And uh, with that, Best of luck on all those projects, man. It, it sounds like you're going to be busy for quite some time. I'm going to try. Thanks for having me again. This was <laughs> fun. There's more to come. Awesome. We're going to go ahead and stop the recording and talk like civilized humans. And thank you for joining and watching. Thank you very much.